I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we attempt to discern not the way of good or the way of evil, but the way of life. Well, for the last several months, we've been going through the story of Jacob, this man who became Israel, the main character of the book of Genesis. We've watched him grow and we've read a story from a man who was characterized by deceit to a man who was able to successfully defend himself with his integrity. We've seen him change from a person of pride who took from others because he thought he deserved it to a man who was willing to subject himself to any shame if it would heal a broken relationship and make things right. We've watched as he's reaped the fruit of his favoritism towards one wife over another, and we'll watch this week as that same attitude is still present. Now, this is not something that Jacob has overcome completely. It's a part of his character that remains and will continue until the day of his death. And yet, Jacob is Israel. He's grown and he's changed, and yet there's this. Now, we want to cast aspersions on Jacob for his quality of favoritism. But is it possible that it's not as evil of a quality as we want to believe it to be? Because doesn't God himself act in favoritism toward some and not toward others? Well, what about Cain and Abel? What about Ishmael? What about Jacob and Esau themselves? You see, we judge Jacob because in the past he's practiced favoritism with his wives, and that's caused no end of trouble. But what was that favoritism based on? Was it based on a truly beneficial quality of one wife over the other, or was it a favoritism based solely on looks and socially desirable qualities? In the past, we saw this favoritism get Jacob into trouble, and this week we will see the same quality of favoritism get Jacob in trouble. But has Jacob changed at all in his exercise of favoritism? Is he perhaps practicing a form of favoritism that is more acceptable? Is he judging based on a more righteous set of criteria? This week also, we come to the last part of this transition in the narrative that we've been in for the last few weeks. We've been with Jacob as the main actor for quite some time, but recently his sons, they've entered the picture as their own actors. And we've had three of them mentioned so far, and not for good reasons. Simeon and Levi, the second and third born, they were main actors for a time, and we learned of their deception and the destruction of an entire city. Reuven, the firstborn, he was an actor for half a verse, and we learned of his attempted coup by sleeping with Rachel's handmaid, Jacob's concubine. As far as the picture that we have of the sons of Jacob, it's not a pretty one, and that picture is not going to be prettied up any this week. And this week, the focus of Genesis changes from Jacob to Jacob's sons fully. And one thing that we've noticed last week was that the sons of Jacob, they had a lot of learning to do. They are young, they're impetuous, they're violent, they're prideful. 
and they will not stand for anyone bringing them to shame. These boys, they're just like their uncles and like their father before his change. They are Esau. They are Laban. They're not good people. And so the process of growth begins once again, and this time in the example of two sons, Joseph and Judah. These two boys will become the focus of the rest of Genesis, and this week we'll see both of them in action. Joseph and Judah, a son of Rachel and a son of Leah, the inheritors of Israel. For now, they're young men. They're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. So let's read this chapter and then discuss the events that unfold in this well-known story. And we might be surprised at what we find when we don our life-colored lenses to examine this text. So let's open up to Genesis 37 and read. Genesis 37. And Yaakov dwelt in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. This is the genealogy of Yaakov. Yosef, being seventeen years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the young man was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Yosef brought an evil report of them to his father. And Yisrael loved Yosef more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a long robe. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and were not able to speak peaceably to him. And Yosef dreamed and dreamed, and he told it to his brothers, so they hated him even more. And he said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have dreamed. See, we were binding sheaves in the midst of the field. And see, my sheaf rose up and also stood up. And see, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Shall you indeed rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And he dreamed still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, See, I have dreamed another dream. See, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars bowed down to me. And he related it to his father and his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall we, your mother and I, and your brothers indeed come and bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father guarded the word. And his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Yosef, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I send you to them. So he said to him, Here I am. And he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the sheep, and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. And a certain man found him, and see, when he was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, saying, What do you seek? And he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please inform me where they are feeding the sheep. And the man said, They have left here, for I heard them say, Let us go towards Dotan. So Yosef went after his brothers and found them in Dotan. And they saw him from a distance, and before he came near them, they plotted against him to kill him. And they said to each other, See, this master of dreams is coming. Now then come and let us now kill him and throw him into some pit, and shall say, Some wild beast has devoured him. Let us then see what comes of his dreams. But Reuven heard and rescued him from their hands and said, Let us not strike his being. And Reuven said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, in order to rescue him out of their hands, and bring him back to his father. So it came to be, when Yosef had come to his brothers, that they stripped Yosef of his robe, the long robe which was on him. And they took him, and they threw him into the pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal, and they lifted their eyes, and they looked, and they saw a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilad, with their camels bearing spices and balm and myrrh, going to take them down to Mitzrayim. And Yehuda said to his brothers, What would we gain if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? 
Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our flesh. And his brothers listened, and men, Midianite traders, passed by, and so they pulled Yosef up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty pieces of silver, and they took Yosef to Mitzrayim. And Reuben returned to the pit, and see, Yosef was not in the pit, and he tore his garments. And he returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where am I to go? So they took Yosef's robe, slew a male goat, and dipped the robe in the blood, and sent the long robe and brought it to their father, and said, We have found this. Please look, is it the robe of your son or not? And he recognized him and said, It is my son's robe. An evil beast has devoured him. Yosef is torn, torn to pieces. And Yaakov tore his garments, and he put sackcloth on his waist, and he mourned his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted, and he said, Now let me go down into Sheol, to my son in mourning. So his father wept for him. And the Midianites had sold him in Mitzrayim to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. Well, as we study scripture, one of the first things that we recognize is that the motivations of the characters are conspicuously absent in the text. We read of their exploits, the things they do. We know their family and their personal histories, but their motivations, their internal thoughts, their emotions, physical descriptions, they're usually absent. So when we come to stories such as the one before us, there is a certain weight to the motivations that have been ascribed to the characters of these stories. As a historical momentum that lasts through today as we take the word of those who've gone before in biblical studies as to what those gaps might contain. And usually when we begin to ascribe motives and state that this is what happened, we lose sight of the fact that the certain motivations that we've been told exist may not be entirely correct. And we saw this two weeks ago as we examined the event that is traditionally called the Rape of Dina. The historical momentum of interpretation of this passage has us seeing Shechem in an evil light that's really more slander than anything else. He's an evil rapist who seeks to dominate a young girl and make her his property. This view has us looking on Simeon and Levi with rose-colored glasses, unwilling to face the true darkness of their actions. They're protecting their sister from a predator rather than being mass murderers in their own right. And it has us viewing Jacob as a weakling who's unwilling to face down those who would victimize his family, rather than a man of honor who's simply trying to make something good out of a bad situation. With this cultural context and the original language at our fingertips, though, we can begin to shift this momentum from the traditional understanding, and as we do so, we may gain insight into this ancient text and perhaps discover a greater depth and an impact on our own lives. And so this week we'll explore the text in another way, and see if we can perhaps discover a new take on the historically recognized motivations of the characters in this story. So specifically the brothers of Joseph, as they try to figure out what to do with him. So let's go back over the story and highlight a few things, and then discuss these motivations and what they can teach us about our own choices. Now Jacob, after the death of Isaac, he settled in Canaan in Hebron, a city that both Abraham and Isaac lived in. The sons of Jacob, they're working in the field with their father's flocks, and Joseph brings an evil report of the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, those sons of concubines. Now they're already on a lower tier of honor standing in the family, and now they're being actively shamed by Joseph, the one with the most honor. The very next verse tells us that Jacob favored Joseph because he was the son of his old age. 
Now, this idiom has been argued over for some time, and commentators usually land on the idea that Jacob was old when Joseph was born. And so he was doted upon like a grandfather would dote on a grandchild, brought up without any responsibility as a prized possession. Problem with that, though. Benjamin was younger. Benjamin was the son of an even older age. So why are we never told of Benjamin being the son of Jacob's old age? Now, there are a few commentators that recognize this problem and suggest that this idiom, instead of simply meaning that Jacob was old when he had Joseph, they ascribe to this idiom the meaning of Joseph being wise beyond his years, observant, or, as the Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary states, an old head on young shoulders. I tend to lean towards the second option. Joseph wasn't a son who, like most men, learned from their fathers before their fathers are able to figure out their own faults and problems. Instead, Joseph was a son who, in some way, intrinsically understood many of the lessons his father had learned. Because he never saw his father's wives fighting for Jacob's attention. He never saw his father choosing one wife over the other. He was too young to have Uncle Laban teaching him his bad habits. Instead, Joseph, by the time he came aware, he saw his father's integrity. He saw his father's humility and the characteristic that defined Jacob. And so Joseph, he grew up in the image of the father that he saw, not the one that his brothers saw, that older Jacob, not the young Jacob. And thus, Joseph is a son of his old age. He's a son of the Jacob that had learned. He's a son of the Jacob that had changed. And Jacob recognized this, and he gives Joseph a coat of honor, one that sets him apart from his brothers. And usually this is thought to be a multicolored coat, but the Hebrew simply calls it a tunic flat, as in the, the flat of the hand or the soles of the feet. So another and probably more accurate thought is that this was a coat that was a long coat, had long sleeves down to the hands and a hem that went all the way to the ground. Now, if it's a long coat, then this coat would be recognizable from a distance because of its cut, not because of gaudy colors that could be hard to make out from a distance. Now, regardless, this coat would have made Joseph stand out among his brothers, and he would be a consistent reminder that their father favored him over them. And was this favoritism wrong? Well, let's face it, there's usually favoritism in a family. And in the ancient Near East, favoritism was usually directed towards the firstborn son. Favoritism itself wasn't necessarily evil. It's how it's practiced that brings evil. And it's how people respond to a show of favoritism that's directed towards someone else that brings evil. Now, as I covered before, when Jacob had practiced favoritism in the past, he did so because of beauty. When Isaac had practiced favoritism with Esau, he did so because of the status of firstborn, and because Esau was a strong hunter and a manly man, and he provided exotic meats. But Jacob here is not choosing Joseph for any of these reasons. If we're understanding the idiom correctly, he chose Joseph as his favorite because of Joseph's wisdom and his ability to model his father's image. As a successor, these are great qualities for a son to have. And besides, the first three in line have already disqualified themselves from taking over. Those incidences have likely made it clear to Jacob that choosing based on birth order who will be the one to lead the family is a rather foolish exercise. And so he chooses now based on a greater qualities of wisdom, faithfulness, and self-control. He perhaps practices favoritism responsibly in this case. This overt show of favoritism, it turns Joseph's brothers against him, though. 
And it's into this situation that Joseph declares his prophetic dreams of becoming the leader of the family. And the dreams are familiar, and they become a plot point later in the story. Uh, but for now, these dreams are simply a way for Joseph to declare his own importance before his father and his brothers. Now, not simply is he chosen of his father, now he's the chosen of God to lead the entire family. Joseph is succumbing to a temptation that threatens everyone who is elevated above others. Pride and self-importance. These dreams, they're not super important for now, other than the setup. There is one congruence that I'll simply point out, and that's in Revelation 12, when we read of the woman with the moon at her feet and clothed in the sun with the 12 stars around her head. Uh, there have in the past few years been some who have declared that the sign has in fact occurred in the heavens. But we have to remember that Revelation, it's a book of prophecy, and as such, it's packed full of symbology. If we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, then the second dream of Joseph speaks directly to the sign of Revelation 12, and the woman is simply Israel rather than a sign or an omen of something that can be observed with the eye. Now, Joseph's telling of the dreams, they cause his brothers to become hateful and envious at his word. A real trouble is brewing in the household of Jacob because the brothers have demonstrated that they don't know how to handle being shamed. In verse 12, the brothers go to feed the flocks in Shechem, and Jacob then sends Joseph to go and check on the brothers. Well, Joseph gets to Shechem, and he discovers that his brothers aren't there. Uh-oh, they are going to be in trouble. He finds a man who directs Joseph to Dotham, a, a city that's somewhat nearby. It's not like right around the corner. It's a ways away. Now remember Shechem at this point, it's a ghost town. There's nothing to do in Shechem but to watch the sheep all day. Nothing to do but the task that has been assigned to them. And we don't know a lot about Dotham from this time in history, but we can assume that Dotham was populated at this point in history. And it would have had merchants and food and women and entertainment of sorts. Because it was, after all, along the trade route from north in Assyria down into Egypt. Regardless of the specifics, they weren't in Shechem. They weren't where they were supposed to be. Which means there's a bad report heading to their father. More shame is about to be heaped upon their head. Now, brothers know this, and so when they see Joseph approaching, they plot to kill him. And now comes a choice. Now, I remind you all that any motives of these brothers for why they make their various stands, they're completely unknown unless otherwise stated in the text. So a confrontation comes between the brothers. The majority of the brothers, they wish to see Joseph dead. He's shamed them. He has been honored above them. He reminds them constantly of their own failures. And so if they're simply rid of him, they mistakenly believe that their own shame will be washed away or at least hidden from sight. They won't have to have this constant reminder of this young upstart in his dreams confronting them daily. But one of the brothers has another idea. Reuben hears this plan and he chooses the opposite way. Reuben, now remember, he's out of favor with Jacob for his attempted coup, and he knows, or at least suspects, that he will not now inherit as the firstborn. Or perhaps Reuben believes that if he brings Joseph back safe and sound and tells Jacob of the plan of the other brothers and how Reuben rescued Joseph from them, then Jacob might reinstate him as the heir. So with this dichotomy, the brothers on one side wishing to do evil, Reuben on the other side desiring to do good, if perhaps for selfish reasons, Joseph is captured and he's thrown into a pit, a bore. It's a, it's a Hebrew word for a dry cistern or a well or a pit. 
and the brothers, they sit down to eat a meal, and for some reason, Reuben is missing during this next scene. Now, this might seem out of place. They're going to kill Joseph, but before they do it, they have a snack? And well, in the ancient Near East, you secured a pact or an agreement by eating a meal together. Perhaps this is why Reuben was missing. He wasn't on board with the pact to kill Joseph, and so he made an excuse to get away while the others engaged in their pact to destroy Joseph. And while eating, some traders are seen in the distance, and Judah has an idea. Why should we get rid of Joseph and not gain anything at all? If we sell him into slavery, we'll at least make some money. And we all shudder at this cold, calculated greed of Judah and his suggestion that they send Joseph into slavery for a few silver coins. And we stand in judgment of Judah for his leadership. The question I have is this. Did Judah make the wrong decision? Was his the worst of the options that day? No. Was his the best of the options that day? I mean, let's finish it. The options open before him were limited. Did Judah perhaps make the only decision that made sense in the situation? Was Judah perhaps the only one thinking clearly? We'll discuss this further in a bit, but before them, Joseph is sold and Reuben returns from wherever it is that he's gotten off to. When he returns, he finds Joseph is gone and he laments, Oh, where can I go now? Joseph was his ticket to get back into his father's good graces. Joseph was his responsibility as the firstborn. And if he returned without Joseph, he truly stood no chance of finding honor in Jacob's home ever again. The shame of such an act would be too great. So they need a story. They need one that will not lead back to them, one in which they would have plausible deniability. And the one that they pick, it's one that fascinates me because it takes on the form of a twisted version of the sacrificial system in some ways. A goat is slaughtered. The robes are washed in blood. And washing robes in blood, that's a metaphor that's used later in Scripture for the cleansing of sin. A life that was heading into death is spared and finds life. That's redemption right there. And those who are guilty, they're made innocent in the eyes of their father. It's forgiveness. Let's also recognize that in this deception, in Jacob's earlier defining fault, it's one against leveled right back at him. Two weeks ago, it was his sons deceiving a city in order to destroy them. Now it's his sons deceiving him in order to cover up a crime of kidnapping. And when Jacob hears this news, he tears his robes and he weeps over the loss of Joseph. Poor Jacob. God had promised him his land. He was to come here and to live a life of ease and luxury, right? He'd entered into his rest, so to speak. Head of the household, he's in the land of promise, he's chosen of God. But ever since he's come to Canaan, he has had nothing but heartache and trouble. The incident at Shechem, it heaped shame on his head. The death of Rachel heaped sorrow on his head. The attempted coup then doubled the shame that was on him. The disappointment that he feels at the failure of the first three sons. And now Joseph is killed by wild beasts and his sorrow redoubles. Canaan was to be this land of promise. This was where hope was to be fulfilled. And it has brought Jacob only shame and sorrow. 
Now, this is something that we will come back to in a later episode because there's a whole lot here that we can learn from it. From here, Joseph is sold into slavery and from there into an service of the officer of Pharaoh's court. Now, one thing that's occupied the minds of many in the last half of this chapter for some time is that Joseph was sold to Ishmaelites, but then he's sold in Egypt to Midianites. But then if we turn forward to chapter 37, it's Ishmaelites once again that sold Joseph. And what is this? And accusations of contradictions are thrown at the text when this is recognized. But we only have to turn to the book of Judges to discover that the term Midianite and Ishmaelites, they're used interchangeably at times in the Bible. In Judges 8, 22-26, in the story of Gideon, it says, So the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, also your son's son, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I do not rule over you, nor does my son rule over you. Hashem does rule over you. And Gideon said to them, I have a request to make of you, that each of you give me the ring from his spoil. For they had rings of gold, because they were Ishmaelites. And they said, We shall certainly give them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw into it the ring of his spoil. And the weight of the gold rings that he requested was 1,700 pieces of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple robes which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were around the camel's necks. Midian was a son of Abraham through Keturah, who was sent to the east. Ishmael was a son of Abraham through Hagar, that was also sent to the east. And we get a picture from the use of these terms interchangeably that these families, well, there's two options. Either one, they intermarried and they became one family. There's another option. Now, scripture, scripture doesn't always use descriptive terms such as these as a way of describing physical origins or someone. Many times descriptions such as these, they're used as a depiction of the purpose or function of someone. Now, if we combine these examples, we may discover that Ishmaelite is a description of how a person acts. Ishmaelites, they're slavers. They wear gaudy jewelry everywhere. Thus, those who wear gaudy jewelry and engage in slave training, we can simply call them Ishmaelites, regardless of their physical country of origin. So the seeming contradiction is not as much of a contradiction as some want to claim. There are several options for how we solve this conundrum easily, and that's just two. There are several more. And so it is with this that Joseph ends up in Egypt, in the house of Potiphar, a slave in a foreign land. And that's where the chapter ends. So let's go back a bit. I touched earlier on the choice that faced the brothers as they were contemplating what to do with him. On the one side, we have the majority who want to kill Joseph. Why? Well, to be rid of the reminder of Joseph's honor and their own relative shame in comparison to him. It was quite easily spotted as the evil thing to do. The brothers shouldn't do this, to destroy an innocent life. To borrow their own phrase from three chapters earlier, this should not be done in Israel. As Simeon and Levi, they were already tainted by this for the sake of honor, and the rest of the brothers, they're heading down the same path. Now, on the other side is Reuben. Reuben desires to save Joseph from this evil plot, and to take Joseph back to his father, and to regain honor over his brothers, perhaps even regain his status and the right and honor of the firstborn. But what Reuben wants to do is the good option. But is it? Will taking Joseph back to Jacob and shaming the other brothers once again save Joseph's life? 
Well, not at all. The brothers will still seek to kill Joseph once again, sometime later. This action, it wouldn't really save Joseph from his brothers. It would only delay the inevitable, and it would put power-hungry Reuben back in favor. And so in the middle of this, between the seeming good of Reuben and the absolute evil of the brothers, comes a solution that, while not perfect, it will save the life of Joseph and allow him to have a chance. It will also prevent the guilt of murder from tainting the rest of the brothers. The choice here of do the good thing or do the evil thing will lead to nothing but evil in the end. There's only one option that can lead to a solution that's satisfactory to everyone. And yes, that's satisfactory even to Joseph. And that is the choice of life. I mean, let's face it, this world, it's not a perfect world. Sin has corrupted this world. The knowledge of good and evil has corrupted this world. Sometimes we may discover that good choices can lead only to a delay of evil rather than a complete prevention of evil. When making choices, we must consider not just the good choice or the evil choice, but we may, must recognize that there may be a third choice, the choice of life. Now, which choice will preserve life? Which choice will produce life? Which choice will create life in a no-win situation? Not simply in the immediate, but also in the future. Was Judah consciously choosing life in this situation? I believe that he was in a way. Even if he did not conceptualize it this way, he simply didn't want to kill Joseph. But he still wanted Joseph gone. Perhaps it was subconscious and a bit of greed peeking through the surface enticed Judah into bringing up this option that preserved his life. You see, Joseph endangered Judah's standing as the next in line to inherit. And if Reuben got in his way, then Judah loses, with Reuben reinstated as the heir. And no one wins at all if they kill Joseph. And so this bit of spontaneous greed, or deep thought, or even subconscious prompting, it leads to a solution that, while awful and unfortunate, it creates the space for what happens next. It creates the space for future salvation. Now, this choice, it doesn't come without a cost. Judah does pay for this choice. He does not go unpunished. And we'll talk of this next week, the fallout of Judah's own life from what occurred here. But that is for next week. This week, let's focus on that choice. The choice that's between immediate good and downright evil. The choice of life that creates long-term good. Now, this choice is not only found here, but this choice is found in other places in Scripture once we have eyes to see it. Another example is found in Exodus chapter 2, and it's a series of choices that lead to life and the long-term good of Israel. A decree is made by Pharaoh that all of the male Hebrew children were to be thrown into the Nile and killed. One family chooses to ignore the decree and to do the immediate good, to keep their child, to keep them alive, and to keep them in their household. But just as the good decision in this chapter that we are studying right now would have been a temporary reprieve of the evil that was coming, so too was the good action of that family of Moses being hidden. It couldn't happen forever, and so they find the way between. They throw Moses into the river, but they do so in a way that preserves his life. And so Moses is sent down the river. Now, do you see that congruence there, this pattern? the good, the evil, and then life somewhere in between. The evil was the river without the ark. 
the good was to keep him at home in defiance of Pharaoh. Life is a mixture of both, because both the good and the evil end up in death. Moses is thrown in the river, and the command of Pharaoh is fulfilled, but it's fulfilled in a way that preserves life. Well, the congruence in the pattern, it doesn't stop there. Moses, there he is in his basket, sitting in the reeds, and he's discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. Now, Pharaoh's daughter, she also faces this choice. She could do the evil thing and simply push the basket under the water or tip Moses out of it and fulfill her father's command. She could do the good thing according to her societal understanding of good and simply allow the basket to continue on its way down the river, perhaps even giving it a little nudge on its way. It would live up to her father's command, not actively defying him, submitting to his authority as a good daughter should. But instead she chooses to take the baby from the river to raise him as her own. Active defiance of her father's orders for the sake of preserving life. Right here, back to back, we find two women who choose not the good nor the evil, but they choose life, that narrow path between the one that contains pain and heartache and yet saves and preserves life. Can we perhaps learn to spot these options in our own lives when times of great choice come upon us? Can we identify the good, then identify the evil, and then stop and consider the path between the two? This is not as easy to do as it may seem because we're taught to look at the poles of good or evil, and a third option is seen as unworkable or undesirable. We have these lenses over our eyes, metaphorically speaking, that direct us one way or the other in a purely dualistic thought, rather than a thought that's based on polarity. And to understand the difference between dualism and polarity, I suggest you go back and you listen to the special episode number one from Shavuot 2019. Because in that teaching, we discussed that duality may be the wrong understanding of our existence, but rather that we should look at life as polarity. Because it's when the two poles meet that life is found, that energy exists, that movement and growth happen. Somewhere between good and evil is a way of life. If the good had been done in Genesis 37, Joseph would have made it home safely for a time. But then another time was bound to come when Joseph would find himself alone with one or two or even six of the brothers, and he would have ended up dead. They hated him. And Joseph returning home safe and sound after they'd thrown him into a pit to tell their father of what they had done would only have driven them further into that hate. He would never have been safe again at home after this. The good would only have delayed the onset of evil and perhaps even created a space for greater evil. Imagine if they had got home and the brothers kill him there in their father's house and Jacob finds out that his sons had killed Joseph. How many more evils would have resulted as the family of Israel split and no savior would have been in place to provide when the great famine comes later? This event here gives us great insight into this choice of good and evil and how even when good is done, death can occur. But what is good is not always right, and what is right is not always what we call good. We have to learn to define good as God defines good. And in each of these situations, though we wouldn't call it good, they were good in God's sight. And it's up to us to consider the options when we're faced with this choice. And to consider not just the immediate good or or the evil, 
but to consider the long-term good, the long-term good of the life. And that's a very real part of the process of Derashchai, of seeking life wherever it may be found. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derashchai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Derashchai, as we seek life. Shalom.